Hey, I want to tell you guys about another podcast I think you'll love. Deep Cover Mobland is a true story of a high-rolling Chicago lawyer named Robert Cooley who helped the outfit fix cases from traffic tickets to murder. Then he went undercover to take them down. You guys are probably familiar with the murder case he fixed for outfit hitman Harry Aleman. This resulted in Aleman walking from the murder of Billy Logan. After Cooley turned, he testified that he had bribed the judge in Aleman's first trial. The next judge ordered a new trial, and he convicted Aleman of murder. Like the feds, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern got Cooley to talk, and they take listeners on a wild journey into a world of corruption, murder, and mayhem in Chicago. You can listen to Deep Cover Mobland wherever you get your podcast. And on a personal note, I love this podcast, man. I had already listened to their first season about an FBI agent who started working a Midwest motorcycle gang drug case, and he ended up following a string that took down Manuel Noriega. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. I'm back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. As you guys can tell by the background, it's good to be back here with you guys. Uh, I'm recording this just before Thanksgiving. Now, this won't come out till you know, maybe even after the first of the year, but uh, we're getting ready to do our film festival, our Mafia Film Festival here in Kansas City. I've been really busy with this, but I've been trying to get hold of um, this next guest for a while because it has a really interesting book about the what we would really say the roots of the modern mafia in, in New York City. And and uh, I finally got in touch with him and, and got him on the line here. It's Thomas F. Kaminsky. Uh, he wrote a book called The uh, East Village Mafia. Let me put up a, uh, all right, there you go. East Village Mafia by Thomas F. Kaminsky. Tom, thanks a lot for being on the show. Is it okay if I call you Tom or should I call you Thomas? Oh, please call me Tom. Thanks All for right. having me, guys. Good, good. Well, I, I love your accent, man. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm the one with the accent, they tell me. <laughs> I tell you what, Tom, I've got some of the crudest, rudest comments from, from people about my uh, uh, either Southern accent or Corn Pone accent or, or uh, uh, Hillbilly accent on the my YouTube channel. <laughs> is that a Kansas City accent, Gary? Uh, actually, what I have is more a Northwest Missouri nasal twang, I would call. Everybody that comes from kind of my area of the country is about 50 to a couple hundred miles north and west and east of Kansas City has a talks about like I do. Now, people in the city, guys that I know worked with on the job that grew up in Kansas City, they don't have quite the same uh, nasal twang that I do. They have kind of a twang and it's a little Southern, more Southern, of course, but uh, but not to the extent that I do. But, you know, I, I just embrace it, man. <laughs> uh, it's great. So Thomas F. Kaminsky, uh, you were a, uh, a police officer, investigator, just like I was for a long time with the uh, uh, New York Department of Investigations. You were the chief of that division. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you did there. Yes, uh, the New York City Department of Investigation is charged with investigating uh, all corruption, criminal conduct, conflicts of interest in New York City agencies and with businesses that do that are contractors with the New York City. So uh, my particular area of expertise for 10 or more years, I investigated 
the anti-poverty program system in New York, uh, which is billions of dollars. And then, uh, as I like to say, I moved into the big leagues mm -hmm. and started investigating corruption, criminal conduct, sex abuse in the New York City public school system. And I did that for over 20 years. Wow. At New York City public school system. What, what, what's their budget like? How, how much money do they deal with? Right now, their budget is $35 billion a year. Wow. So that, there's a lot of room to be trying to scrape a little off the top or oh, the sides yeah. or the bottom in there in that deal. Yep. Wow. Millions, millions can go unnoticed uh, just down the drain and into a pocket. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I, I, I worked one of those school board uh, embezzlements here and the uh, the lack of controls of simple financial good practices, good accounting practices was was not even there at all. It, it was amazing what what they did. And there was a lot. They stole, I don't know, hundred thousand dollars or so in a short period of time. The only reason they ever got caught because one of the gals done his husband got mad at her and came in and told us about it. <laughs> Otherwise, they'd have probably gone on their whole lives taking that money. And I'm sure you've seen things uh, even much worse than that. Oh, millions and millions. Yeah. So you got interested in this Lower East Side and, and describe geographically, talk about the East Village Mafia, describe geographically for our guys, because we've got people from all over the world. What, what area are you talking about, kind of in general and then more spe specific? Sure. Uh, the, the most uh, famous area in New York City, in Manhattan, that people know about is called the Lower East Side. It's where all the immigrants came in the Irish, the Germans, the Jewish, the Italians. Now, the very northern tip of the Lower East Side is now called the East Village. It changed, the, it, it changed over from known, being known as the Lower East Side to the East Village in the 1960s. And uh, the, the very area that I'm talking about is a very small portion of the East Village. It's from uh, on the on the West, it's Second Avenue, and it extends only two blocks to Avenue A East, and then from East 14th Street down to East 10th Street, which is four or five blocks. So you're only talking about 20 or so, uh, even less square blocks. And the East Village is well over a hundred square blocks. Wow. So it's a very, it's probably the smallest uh, Italian enclave in New York City. And I'm talking about when all the immigrants came in, you know, a million Italians came pouring into New York right. City. Uh, this was the smallest. Hmm. And uh, yet the mafia uh, had a huge presence there for 70 years. Now, I grew up on 14th Street and Avenue A, just hmm. at the northern tip. Uh, I lived there from 1953 to 1990. Uh, I went to school there, Catholic school. Uh, and that's probably where my first interest came because I had a classmate, uh, whose name I'm not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> However, his father was an associate of the Genovese crime family. He lived on East 13th street in MUA, a block away from me. And, uh, we heard stories through him about the things his father did. And, uh, just to give you an example, his father was a strong arm man. And he told us once. A guy didn't pay a debt. He hang He hung him by his ankles off a rooftop. Oh, <laughs> uh, another instance. Uh, 
there was a famous pool hall on East 14th Street that the Italians owned. And then as the neighborhood started to change, a lot of Puerto Ricans started moving in uh, in the in the 60s and 70s. So there was sort of a uh, they moved into the pool hall. The Italians were there. There were fights. There was a stabbing once where uh, an Italian kid was stabbed to death. Mm -hmm. So uh, my friend's father and his uh, mob gangster friends, they rented a box truck and they they opened the back of the box truck and they drove up and down and shot at any Puerto Rican they saw. Oh, boy. So (laughs) this is this is just. The, this is just an associate I'm talking about here. Uh, so I had an interest from an early age. Really? And I, like I said, I grew up uh, on the edge of this neighborhood. But the neighborhood was famous more for, it was not famous for the mafia. Uh, when you talk about the mafia in New York City, people talk about in East Harlem, they talk about Greenwich Village. Yeah, Red they Hook, talk about Brooklyn. O- Ozone Park and Bensonhurst Ozone and all Park, that. Yeah. Uh, Bensonhurst, Bay Ridge. In the Bronx, there's a famous neighborhood on Arthur a- Belmont, uh, yeah. Arthur Avenue. Uh, so no one really knew about this neighborhood. And that's what this book is about, this neighborhood and the, the incredible names of and uh, activities that, that went on there that really no one knows. See, now, when you say East Village, I always think of, uh, uh, we talked a little bit before about the beat poets and, and music. Was that where uh, Max's Kansas City and CBGB's? Those joints uh, like CBGB's, that. CBGB's, yes. Max's Kansas City was a little bit north of there. North CBGB's there, was on Third Avenue in the East Village. But that alternate, uh, that you know, that punk rock, that change in music, and then before that, the the beat poets, uh, uh, Kerouac and Ginsburg. You know, you always the East Village. You can't think about that. But right in, in right. amongst all that, or was this upper echelon of the New York City mafia families? That's right. And it started out just like the mob did throughout America with prohibition. Yeah. And there were there were uh, just like, I guess, in the rest, I'm sure in Kansas City, I know in Chicago, there were wars going on for control of the money that prohibition was literally pouring into the the mafia. And uh, the the name that uh, probably everybody knows who came from that neighborhood who was one of the preeminent gangsters in the history of the mafia was uh, Lucky Luciano, Charles Lucky Luciano, uh, better known as Salvatore Lucania when he first came from this <laughs> Sicily. And he lived in that neighborhood for 20 years. He lived on East 10th Street. And he actually started a street gang. That He was a street punk. And they would mug Italian immigrants on East 14th Street. They were involved in selling heroin. They were involved in car theft, all the things punks do. Uh, What happened to him is he hooked up with uh, a guy named Joseph Masseria. And Masseria, at the time, this is Prohibition, early Prohibition, early 1920s. He was involved in a gang war, in a mafia war, with a guy named Salvatore Daquila. Daquila, his gang, was the, uh, the roots of what later became the Gambino crime family. And they were in a war for control of uh, the prohibition racket. And Mazaria controlled what they called the curb exchange, which is down in Mulberry Street, which was a very famous mafia neighborhood uh, in the in the uh, south part of the Lower East Side. Uh, And the reason he controlled it is he, he took 
took on these young up and coming gangsters. One of them, Charles Luciano, the other, Vito Genovese. Mm. From the, he was from the west side of Manhattan, Vito Genovese, south of Greenwich Village. So he has this war going on, shootings all over the place uh, in the East Village with Salvatore Tequila. Come 1928, Tequila comes to the East Village, Avenue A and uh, East 13th Street, a block away from where I grew up. Many years before I grew up, but he comes in there and drops his kids and and wife off for a doctor's appointment. This is the heart of Charles Luciano's territory. So obviously word got out that Tequila was there. Uh, Tequila is out there with his car. A, A group of men approach him. They shoot him to death. And Joseph Masseria becomes now Joe the Boss Masseria. Joe, Joe, the boss is now in control of the mafia in New York City. And his lieutenant, first lieutenant, is Charles Lucky Luciano. Just now, what luck. happens from there? I think just, you probably know from there. Just his luck to have a really ambitious young guy <laughs> right under him. <laughs> yes. Well, it, it was lucky for three years. <laughs> and then in 1931, there's a war between Joseph, the, Joe, the boss, Mazzaria, and Salvatore Maranzano. Uh, Maranzano uh, was more known from Brooklyn. His first deputy was a guy, I'm sure you know, Joseph Bonanno. Mm. So this shooting war is going on f- again for uh, several years. And what what Luciano does is he sells out to Maranzano in 1931. He t- one of the most famous mafia hits. He takes Joe the boss to lunch because he's his trusted mm-hmm. lieutenant in Coney Island. Uh, takes him out to lunch. Next thing you know, three gangsters come roaring in, shoot Joe the boss to death. Mm-hmm. And now Salvatore Maranzano becomes the boss. So five months later, we're still in 1931. Maranzano doesn't trust Luciano. <laughs> I don't blame him. Probably with good reason, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> but one of, one of uh, all the young mafia loved Luciano. He obviously was charismatic and he was very smart. Yeah. So he had guys like Tommy Lucchese on his side, uh, uh, Vito Genovese, uh, all, all the young mobsters. Plus, what, what uh, Luciano was smart to do was he worked with the Jewish gangsters. Yeah. The old mafia bosses would not do that. So you had guys like uh, Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel. Uh, they were all friends and, and they, they did rackets with Luciano. So you had this boss, Maranzano. He's the one who started the five families. He actually started the five families. And he was the boss of what eventually became Luciano's family. But he did not trust Luciano. So he hired an Irish gangster to kill Luciano. But Luciano got word because one of Maranzano's underlings was this a later boss named Tommy Lucchese. And Tommy Lucchese tipped off Lucky Luciano. Lucky Luciano hired five Jewish gangsters who were friends of his, you know, through through Meyer Lansky. And and, uh, Louis Buckalter was another famous Jewish gangster who was very close with Luciano. So they went to Maranzano's office, which was in an office building just north of Grand Central. It was the New York Central office building, the railroad office building. And uh, they, they shot and stabbed him to death. 
Now Luciano's in charge, 1931. He continues the five families, except he's in charge of the family that Maranzano ran. And him and Bonanno, Joseph Bonanno, reach a peace agreement, so to speak. And what Luciano does, he's been now involved in gun war, gunfight wars, uh, shootings, killings of, of various mafia for since the beginning of Prohibition 10 years ago. So he says, no, this has got to stop. There's plenty of money we can all make. Why are we shooting and killing each other? We'll keep the five families, but we're going to have a commission. And he starts the commission. And it consisted of the five families, plus sometimes Philadelphia and Buffalo, the bosses up there and down there. And uh, he installed in each family a council or consigliere. And he said, we're going to stop the wars. If, it, if there's an or in, interfamily dispute, we're going to meet and we're going to iron it out. Okay, instead of start resorting to wars. So Lucky Luciano, this kid from East 10th Street, goes from a street punk to the most powerful man in the mafia. And uh, one of his associates who was with him in his street gang was a guy named Joseph Biondo, who I'll talk about later, who with Lucky Luciano were the impetus for narcotics, which was a massive uh, operation within the mafia. You know, there's always been the rumor, oh, the mafia doesn't do narcotics. No, total falsehood. Uh, so that's just two of the guys that came out of that neighborhood or frequented that neighborhood. Joseph Masseria lived on Second Avenue and East Fifth Street before he moved up to Central Park West. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Luciano lived on East 10th Street before he moved up to the, uh, the hotel, uh, the, uh, uh, what was it? The uh, Waldorf Astoria. He lived oh, there. Wow. For yeah, <laughs> he moved yeah. on up to the uh, east side. Know, they, they, <laughs> they all they all got money, but uh, one one of the other uh, locations that's very famous uh, in this area is on East 12th Street. There was a social club called the Shoreview Social Club. Mm -hmm. That was Joseph Bonanno's favorite social club, and he would even though he's more known in Brooklyn, he would come in there. Uh, two or three times a week for three decades. Because remember, he started power in 1931 when they, when uh, Luciano took over and he gave uh, the, uh, the remains of, the, of the, the family, one of the families to Bonanno. He was one of the most powerful families. So he had a social club on 12th Street, East 12th Street between Avenue A and First Avenue twice a week for three decades. Mm. And uh, it was funny because they had a stolen fire hydrant and if if one of the if Bonanno or one of the other bosses was going to come, they put the fire hydrant <laughs> in front of the social club so no one would park there. <laughs> and if you went up and uh, th there was a buzzer for the apartments above uh, and there were little name tags next to the buzzer, one of them read J.E. Hoover, <laughs> as in J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you got to love it. They and got a sense humor. <laughs> they do. They do. This social club uh, was sort of like the United Nations for the mafia. Uh -huh. uh, so you not only had the Bananos in there, but there was a Gambino, uh, a, a Gambino crew that operated out of the neighborhood. They would hang out there. And there was a Genovese family crew, because remember that before the Genovese, Luciano ran that that right. uh, that crew. And there was a Genovese crew that hung out there. So it was literally like the United Nations. And I write all about that uh, social club, including I have a, a blow by blow description of a sit down in that that uh, club 
where they decide uh, how who is going to run a Holiday Inn in New Jersey. Hmm. Uh, and it, 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 uh, it's an interesting story. Uh, you really get an insight into how these things are run. Yeah, Luciano, he was big on meetings. He, uh, he's kind of started that tradition after he started that commission of then forcing people to get together and discuss things and, and variety of meetings. There's one in Sicily, one in Cuba, uh, of course, Appalachian, Appalachian and uh, uh, one in the Stella Hotel. So it's uh, it's like Luciano kind of started that. Now, but there are a lot more high level meetings that took place in that social club. That's right. Uh, interesting story. Uh, the Cuba meeting you're, you're referring yeah. to uh, that was called by Luciano after he was deported to Italy. Remember, he was busted for running the prostitution rackets by Thomas yeah. Dewey. Uh, and he was deported to Italy. So he started to set up base in Cuba, that being the closest place he could get. And of course, the mob was getting into the casinos in Cuba. Uh-huh. Meyer Lansky, uh, uh, they all started uh, to set up hotels and clubs that, that ran gambling down in Cuba. Now, the one thing about Luciano, as I mentioned before briefly, he was a narcotics. He was big into narcotics. He was first busted in 1916 selling narcotics. He was a teenager selling narcotics. And 1923, in the height of prohibition, when he was making hand, money hand over fist as a lieutenant to Joe the Boss Mazaria, uh, and he, he was busted again selling narcotics on East 14th Street. He loved narcotics. He realized, just like today, the Colombians, the Mexicans, yeah. the profits are enormous, phenomenal. So he was always big in narcotics. And what happened is the East Village group, uh, they always sold narcotics. They were selling morphine. They were selling heroin uh, in the East Village. And there was a, a Gambino family crew that was headed by a guy named Joseph Biondo. I mentioned briefly, right. he was in the young gang. He was in the gang when he was a kid with Lucky Luciano. So in 1946, that Cuba meeting you're talking about, right? Uh, the Chicago mob was there. Uh, Jewish mobsters were there. One of the topics was narcotics. What yeah. are we going to do about it? And Luciano wanted to have narcotics. Some of the mob didn't. The guys who were involved in financial crimes, gambling, they saw it as too risky. But Luciano prevailed and he set up a whole system of uh, narcotics coming in from Sicily, from Turkey, through Canada, through North Africa. And he said, the place where we're going to go are the three ports that we control, New York, New Orleans, and Tampa. And in New York, he said, the, the, uh, the distribution of the heroin is going to be controlled through someone that I grew up with, Joseph Biondo. And his crew, at the time, it was the Mangano crime family. Mm-hmm. That was the predecessor to the Gambino crime family. And he was a capo in that Mangano crime family, uh, which later turned into the Anastasia crime family, and then eventually the uh, Gambino crime family. He ran the the distribution of French Connection heroin and East and uh, Sicilian, not Sicilian, and Italian heroin. A lot of Italian heroin came into New York and and uh, and America because it was being produced by the Italian government, 
legally for pharmaceuticals. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And there's a whole chapter I have about that. Hundreds and hundreds of pounds were stolen from these mm -hmm. pharmacies, pharmaceutical heroin producers in Italy. And they were, uh, Luciano arranged for them to be sent into New York. And Biondo had a crew that all they did in the East Village was uh, import and distribute this huge amounts of heroin, French Connection heroin and Italian pharmaceutical heroin. And so one of the top spots in America for distribution and uh, import and distribution heroin was the East Village. And there were two famous, uh, there was a D. Roberti's Bakery on First Avenue between 10th and 11th Street. And literally on the same block, there was a restaurant uh, that these gangsters would meet. They would, they would cut up the heroin and, and uh, work out the distribution. And uh, uh, for years, Gambino's, the, uh, the Genovese family, uh, they all would come down to these social clubs, bakeries, and restaurants and arrange the, the, the uh, importation and distribution of this heroin. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite a place. Bring us a little further more into the, uh, the future here before we get done, Tom. I mean, how did that develop? Is that, you know, is it still something going on down there or on up into the Gotti era? When Gotti came over from Brooklyn, when he took over the, the uh, uh, Gambino family, but he, he was on Mott Street, I believe, uh, or Mulberry, I can't remember, but but he was not in that particular area. So how did that develop more up into the 60s and 70s? What happened is uh, Gotti was also a narcotics dealer. His crew, which was out uh, in, uh, in Queens, his crew uh, was primarily into narcotics. Now, this is the time when Paul Castellano finally said, we're going to get rid of this narcotics because guys are getting 30 year sentences yeah. and they're, they're cooperating with law yeah. enforcement instead of doing the time. <laughs> so he did Paul Castellano who succeeded Carlo Gambino, Paul Castellano known as more of a white collar criminal. You know, he had yeah. financial crimes and he, he ran uh, meat distributorships and he was not into the, the dirty stuff that the mafia does. Uh, and narcotics was a big part of John Gotti's crew. Ozone Park, you mentioned before, that's where his crew was based, which is out in Queens. Uh, so Gotti had a problem because they had his brother uh, was indicted for multi-million dollar heroin dealing. Right. And uh, so uh, he had a problem there. And he also knew that another team member was on tape Another right. one of his crew that was, was that, on tape. That was that Ruggiero that uh, they yes. had him on tape. And Castellano wanted those tapes, if I remember, remember right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> and uh, so Gotti knew he had a problem. Yeah. He was he was going to either he was he could have been killed. He, at, at the minimum, his crew would have been taken away from him. Yeah. So he was He said, I got it. I'm going to I'm going to take over from Paul. I'm going to kill Paul Castellano. Now, the, the way he got it done. Remember, he was just one capo of, of probably a dozen in the Gambino crime family. Yeah. At the time, the oldest and most respected capo was the capo of the Gambino family East Village Mafia crew. His name was Joe Piney Armone. Mm. The, the nickname Piney comes from when he was a young guy. He used to extort 
Christmas tree vendors in Manhattan. <laughs> uh, another mob sick, sick sense of humor, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> right. So Joe Piney, Joe Piney succeeded Joseph Biondo in that uh, crew. Okay. And he was a major heroin dealer. So he and John Gotti had similar interests. They got most of their money from dealing heroin. So Gotti needed an old timer to, to get the other old timers in, in the Gambino family to come on board with him because the commission did not sanction the hit of Paul Castellano. So he went to Joe Piney Armone and he asked him, can you talk to the other Gambino capos? Uh, and he did. And they agreed. And that's how Joe and John Gotti was able to kill uh, Paul Castellano, famous hit in uh, yeah. Steaks inside a steak uh, steakhouse, Sparks Steakhouse right. in Midtown Manhattan, just before Christmas. Yeah, yeah, right. The most famous mob hit of modern times since uh, uh, yes, uh, Joe the Boss and and those early hits. But uh, as an individual action, that was probably in modern times that is the most famous hit because it's more recent, of course. But it it was huge. All right. Well, this has been great. Tom, and any other, tell, tell me one more story that, that you think there's an example of stories that people are going to find in your book. Yes. Well, the, another, probably the, uh, after the Gotti uh, hit of Castellano, probably one of the major hits that, uh, that people remember, if, if you're into the mafia, was Albert Anastasia. Yeah. At, at the Park Sheridan Hotel in the middle of the day. Well, it was the morning, but it was a, a weekday this is near Central Park. This is a luxury hotel. He's sitting in a barber chair getting a shave and he gets killed. And uh, the people who did it were the, the crew of uh, Joseph Biondo, the oh, drug really? dealing crew. Hmm. That, that's who did it. Originally, people believed that Crazy Joe Gallo did it. And the reason they believe that Crazy Joe Gall Gallo did it, because he said he did it. He went around <laughs> telling people he was the he barbershop quintet. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the truth of the story is that uh, Vito Genovese wanted Anastasia out of the way because Vito wanted to take over the mafia. Uh, that, that eventually led to that famous Appalachian uh, meeting right. that Vito called. But what happened is Anastasia hated him. And Anastasia ran what became the Gambino family. He had about 300 soldiers. So he had to get rid of them. So he approaches Carlo Gambino. Vito Genovese approaches Carlo Gambino and says, look, you're the underboss. You're going to be the boss if you help me take out Anastasia. So Gambino, when he was a capo, used to have a restaurant in the East Village. And he used to sell, he used to import and sell heroin from Sicily uh, with Lucky Luciano. He knew these guys. Yeah. So he approaches the capo. He's the underboss. He approaches the capo. Joseph Biondo says, I want you to do the hit for me. So he's the one who sent the hit team that killed Anastasia. And I have a whole chapter about that in my book. Yeah. See, that's uh, that's a good one, uh, Tom. That uh, that whole story about uh, Joey Gallo. I was just researching a story on crazy Joey Gallo, thinking I'd, uh, I'd do one on the podcast. And, and so far, that's that's what I'm finding is some people are saying, and, and actually one of his own guys wrote a book called the Sixth family, uh, uh, Pete, the Greek, they called him, wrote a book years ago about this. And, and he's, he's claiming that, that Gallo did it, but I think Pete, the Greek, a lot of his stories in there, are like fine detail, but a lot of his stories are like, we're, we're a little bigger than life. So it's, you know, with this mob stuff, there's so much myth. 
And I can exactly. tell that, that you exactly. have you have cracked through the myth. And yeah. and that's what it takes is somebody that takes the effort and put willing to put in the work to go through the myth to find some uh, primary source documents and, and uh, uh, things like that to to say, no, this is what happened because it's, you know, the whole secret society. And then they throw out stuff that in order to show throw the authorities off in order to throw a story out this way or throw a story out that way, take attention off themselves. It's tough for somebody to find crack through those myths. Yeah, there, one of the biggest uh, sources I I found was the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Have you ever yeah, heard I've of heard, them? I've it? heard that. My a good friend of mine here, as a mob historian, retired FBI agent Bill Owsley, told me he said that that is the the lodestone, the 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 place where you're going to find the good solid information about the mafia. Yes, what happened is they they were a division of the Department of Treasury. I think they started in the 1930s. And as you probably know, the FBI really didn't start looking right. into the mafia until the 60s. Yeah. So these this agency is the one that really was pursuing the mafia primarily because of the narcotics that they were involved in, narcotics deals they were involved in. And I got a hold of some of their records. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Fantastic yeah. records. So That's, that was a big source document. Yeah. Oh, well, good. That's exactly what Bill told me. So uh, it's uh, it's important. Folks, uh, book is Lower East Village. You need to uh, go to Amazon and find it. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, this is uh, Thomas Kaminsky. Uh, I really appreciate you being on here, Tom. Gary, thank you so much for having me. Okay. Uh, don't forget, you guys, uh, hit me up on Venmo. Buy me a cup of coffee and a shot and a beer or whatever you want or my PayPal. Uh, got uh, some of the stuff, some of the stuff that I've done on the website. Now, nobody uses any B- DVDs anymore, I, but it is on Amazon. You can rent all my movies on Amazon. So take a look at that. I really appreciate you being on here, Tom. Uh, talk to you later. Bye. Thank you, Gary. Take care. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.